This is a crusade. This is a holy war against the deep state. Where are the dictators? Where are the strong men? Donald Trump is our instrument for retribution. I'm going to fight for Christians. I'm going to fight for white people. They have the Great Reset. We have the Great Awakening. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. After the assailant entered the home asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol. I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. On Thursday, November 9th, GMG Group CEO Jim Spanfeller announced that he was shutting down Jezebel after its parent company was unable to find a buyer for the iconic women-centric website. Daily Beast journalist Robert Silverman joins me today to talk about this, as well as the potential for workers' collectives in media. Stick around. Robert, welcome back. It's been too long. It has. So this week, Jezebel, the feminist media site, was shuttered by its parent company, Geo Media. It's the holding company that owns and operates several digital media outlets, including Gizmodo, Kotaku, Jalopnik, Deadspin, The Root, AV Club, Takeout, The Onion, The Inventory, and Quartz. And it's owned by a private equity firm called Great Hill Partners. Yes. Well, in a memo to the company, the CEO of Geo Media Jim Spanfeller said he made the, quote, very, very difficult decision to suspend publication of Jezebel, unquote, after an unsuccessful search for a buyer for the website. Spanfeller praised Jezebel's editorial team, but said that the company's business model and the audience we serve across our network did not align with Jezebel's, unquote. So the usual CEO things. Yeah. So it's really unfortunate because this isn't a site that wasn't seeing traffic. Jezebel was doing fine in terms of the number of people who were going to it. Even with a gutted staff, right. even with the staff that, you know, they, they lost their editor-in-chief this summer, Laura Bassett resigned. They've been dealing with an interim editor-in-chief. There were departures. There were staffing slots, as far as I can tell from what's been publicly reported, that weren't filled. And even so, right. the important part of that, uh, let's just say bland corporate speak from Jim Spamfilter, was <laughs> that- their audience and their business model did not align? Right. What exactly does that mean? That's a good question. What business model are they referring to? What do you mean? Because if they're getting readership, what is the business model? And unfortunately, you know, this is something that's, that was reported out in a number of places. Uh, 404 Media, hmm. ironically enough, yeah. put out a report saying that advertisers are seeking out what are known as brand safety experts. Right. Advertisers want to put their brands, they believe, in front of online content that will both attract a wide audience, mm -hmm. but upset no one. Huh. Seems like an awful hard needle to thread these days. It really does, because the things that attract a wide audience are often things that are very upsetting, not just to a percentage of that audience, not to say, oh, well, some people might find this reporting offensive or, you know, this blog offensive. They're about things that are upsetting. That's sort of what the news business is. Right. News business reports on things that are bad. Exactly. Exactly. And it's ironic that that report was in 404 Media because 404 Media was started by people who met this same fate from Vice 
earlier this year, if I'm correct. Vice and Kotaku. Right. A former Geo Media property. So it's kind of like they would absolutely know. Right. right. I mean, look, there is a lot of reporting out there that calls into question Jim Spamfelter's ability to run a digital media property in the year our Lord 2023. I think if you <laughs> talk to anyone who has worked under his leadership since Radial Partners bought the remnants of the Gawker Media Empire, they would not have kind things to say. There is a long blog you can read by Megan Greenwald, the former editor-in-chief of Deadspin, right. about her tenure dealing with Spamfeller. But that said, there is this secondary problem here, which is that advertisers don't like want to have to think about things. They don't want to have to make judgments. No. They don't want to have to evaluate it. They just want to be able to say, well, we hired these people here. And they said that this might not be brand safe because, you know, a feminist website is going to talk about things like abortion mm -hmm. or they'll talk about sex crimes or they will talk about the treatment of women in this country or they will talk about any number of issues that a feminist website would. And they may say, well, you just probably should not put your advertising on this because someone spotting an ad while reading this article isn't going to be inspired to buy something. I don't know if that's exactly true. No. There is a dual problem here. There is a problem, which is one that advertising is put in front of all kinds of garbage media. But accurate reporting now suddenly getting carved out because it makes people too sad or mad mm -hmm. is a whole new problem that we really haven't broached yet. So I I'm really happy that the media really delved into this, but it's absolutely terrifying, which is that the, the problem at the core of this is that for the last, golly, nearly three decades now, the newspaper business has relied on a very simple model, which is that if you wanted to reach a wide variety of people, you paid for classifieds and you paid for advertising. Right. And the trade-off was that the newspaper would send people to war zones or they would cover the latest bit of corruption in the mayor's office. Right. Or they would cover city hall meetings. Or they would cover police brutality. Or they would cover all those all those things. But advertisers made a bargain, which is like, okay, you can go do that. Because at least if I want to sell a 1981 Honda Civic and I need <laughs> to put a classified <laughs> ad there, a lot of people will read about that. Right. And that's all broken now. Yes. That's gone. We're losing two local newspapers a week these days, according to an article I just read in The Hill, and it isn't getting any better. We're getting to the point where there is no coverage in a lot of places. Places are turning into news deserts, and nobody's holding the mayor to account. Nobody's holding the police to account in these places at all. There's no local coverage of any of this stuff. And and I don't care how many people subscribe to the New York Times to play Spelling Bee or, or Wordle. <laughs> Wordle. Yeah, I say this is someone who plays Wordle every day, but <laughs> <laughs> I have yet to have that experience. So I'm going to take your word for that. It yeah, takes, it's fun. It takes like 30 seconds, man. It's a, it's just a second. Of, it's a nice little diversion. <laughs> I subscribe for the articles, man. I don't know. <laughs> I, I do a puzzle. Okay. I like my puzzles. Okay. Okay. Not judging. Not judging. But the New York Times cannot cover what's happening in Des Moines. No. They can't ever report it. They can't cover what's happening in Spokane. They no, can't they cover what's happening across this entire country. It is the lack of simply having a person going to city council meetings is allowing for more corruption, 
graft and theft. And it is exceedingly bad. Jezebel is not just, it's not just that it was a popular website now. It is a historical website that was a turning point in the history of online writing and online reporting. Right. And the fact that it's just whoop, gone is an atrocity. And of course, we got to see all of the worst people in the world celebrating. This oh, yeah. Over the weekend. Because it makes their lives easier. Yeah. This is one thing that they're not going to have to worry about holding them to account for something shitty that they've done. I mean, you know, look, we're long past the point where I think that, especially for the for the online right, I think they don't really care about getting written up and again nope. about getting exposed at this point. I still think it's exceedingly valuable. Like it is, I, I think having a record of true things somewhere right. is an ex- is something that humanity will suffer for long term if it is permanently lost. And Jezebel was one of the places that did that. Mm -hmm. They had that record. And you've talked about this before where you've said like part of the important thing that journalists, media can do is to provide that record. So someday someone can go look and say, Mm -hmm. this is what was really happening at this particular time. I mean, we have times in history we can't really do that. And we, as media people, as journalists have to be able to improve on that, I think. And, you know, Jezebel was one of those things that was a record of holding some of these people to account. And now what? Well, I don't know. There was a snarky post on my good buddy, Tim Poole. Ah, that guy. After the announcement was made. That fucking guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my dear sweet friend. He was bragging about the grand success of his news. And I'm putting it in world's largest air quotes, Endeavor. <laughs> and sites like The Daily Wire at Stephen Crowder's Mug Club. And why are they thriving then if the financial environment for the news business is so bad? Well, Tim, the answer is very simple. You run a crappy content mill Mm -hmm. that does bare bones aggregation that often delved in the past into straight plagiarism. And you are also supported by an incredibly profitable YouTube channel that turns a fire hose of white nationalism onto people every night. So that's your economic model. That's how you sustain those. The Daily Wire, I think it's the Wilkes Brothers who gave Ben Shapiro the seed money for that. So they're supported by by fracking billionaires. Right, right. But I do want to make one point about the way that they're right. Right. All of those places, pool included, Mm -hmm. turned to a subscription model fairly early on. Right. And that subscription model was successful. Now, that can't work for covering the city council in Spokane. No, not anymore it can. It is not a cure-all. Like forming news collectives, it's not a panacea that's going to solve this widespread problem. The actual solution is nationalizing Google and Facebook and divesting their profits for the public good. You will get no argument out of me on that one. Absolutely I'm not sure if that's on the table anytime soon, but that's the actual no, but that would be the solution. You're correct that these right. are the ways people are getting their news now. These are the ways people are are looking at this. And at some point you have to start thinking about if it's going to be a public utility, how do we run it like a public utility? Yes. Yes. But in the interim, one band-aid, one small band-aid is for reporters to realize that the entire management structure that's been erected that is really just a remnant of newspapers and 
glossy magazines in the internet age is probably not necessary. And there is, we are seeing little tiny points of light, places like Defector, places like Hellgate NYC, which places like the city of New York. These are two local news collectors that are done. They're doing excellent reporting. They're, of course, living on the whim of donations and billionaires and always like operating on race within margins too. Uh, 404 Media, which covers tech, is another one. A lot of reporters are saying, if we're going to do this, the only way we can survive, possibly, is by seizing control of the means of production and doing it together. When I tweeted this, I wrote, well, okay, the solution here is, and I think that was too simplistic a way of putting it, it is not a long-term solution. Right. It is a way to make sure that there are some things that are being covered. People do want to pay for this. That is the thing. There is a commodity here that that reporters produce that people do desire. And those people, I believe that they will pay for it. Will they pay for it in enough volume to support serious, hard-hitting investigative work? I don't know. That gets expensive because you need to hire lawyers. It makes it very tricky. Once you need to have lawyers involved, suddenly the price tag for all this goes way, 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 way up. And there are all kinds of deep-pocketed billionaires willing to fund and support utterly frivolous litigation that still will cost people a fuck ton of money in the interim. Oh, yeah. It'll make people avoid doing certain stories because they can't risk the legal bill. Right. Everybody got the message from what happened to Gawker. Yeah. Everybody figured that one out. Yeah, that worked. Mm -hmm. In terms of rate of return, that was one of the best expenditures that Peter Thiel ever made. Oh, absolutely. That and the fresh supply of teenage blow that he gets delivered. <laughs> yes. And yeah, I found myself kind of thinking, like, they couldn't find a buyer, ostensibly. That was what Spanfiller said in his corporate speak statements. And I started thinking about Newsweek. And in 2011, how Newsweek was in a similar situation where it had been purchased and they couldn't find anybody who was willing to give them more than a dollar because of the liabilities involved in all of this. It ended up being Harmon from the Harmon Carden Audio Empire that went ahead and bought it. But after a few other owners, Newsweek comes back and it's like this zombie weird alt-right version of what Newsweek used to be. The Moonies ran it. Right. The Moonies were in charge of Newsweek for a hot minute there. Right, and right. And now they publish Jack Prolisek. They let Jack Prolisek <laughs> yep. right up. It's yep. now out there. For they used to have Michael Hayden, Michael Edison Hayden's hard-hitting exposés of Jack Prolisek, and now they just have Jack Prolisek. It's weird how these things come around. But I, I found myself kind of thinking, like, at what point does Jezebel get cheap enough that it would be within range of the workers to collectivize, get some financing from somewhere, and buy this thing? At what point could you do that? Uh, I have no inside information. I have no sourcing on this. I, I would think that they're talking about it. I think they'd almost have to be. They know the whole Fector gang. I mean, whether they're going to buy the Jezebel brand along with it, or they're just going to rename themselves something else and form like, right. I, I, don't, I don't know. The fact that more and more reporters are doing this, I think is a very good thing. Like I said, it's a drop in the bucket, but at least it's a drop. Yeah. And like I said, there are niche audiences for whom this can work and be a sustainable model. That is not all. No. And I think local news is one of those areas where it's going to be really, really hard to make this work. Yeah. At one point, 
it was sustainable with advertising and classifieds and subscription sales, but nobody buys a subscription to the daily paper anymore. Hardly anybody. Yeah. And you know, even advertising in the print media is so down. It's not even funny. Still 80 to 90% of it goes to, I forget what the exact number is, but you know, a huge majority of that, the advertising we used to go to those places now goes to Google and Facebook and Google is a mess. If you've ever tried mm-hmm. to Google anything to get information now, right. the site is broken. Oh, yeah. You hardly can. The writer Cory Doctorow referred to as the inshittification process of a website. <laughs> and he's right. <laughs> he's absolutely right. The format is this. First, a website exists to serve readers. Right. And then a website figures out a way to serve money, needs money and uses those readers to extract money. And then the website figures out a way to make the product worse and worse and worse for the readers in order to extract more and more and more money. And it loses whatever purpose it was erected for in the first place, which made people want to go there. Right. We've certainly seen that happen with Google. It has absolutely happened with Facebook. And it is definitely happening with Twitter. The last one, of course, is on purpose. Right. Yeah. It's the first time I think somebody has actively decided to inshitify a site that was this useful to this many people and, you know, still kind of blown away about where he thinks he's going with this. The other solution, of course, is to make private equity, make it a financial crime. They were eradicated from the face of the earth. It does no good for anyone. No, it does not. Private equity systems, vulture capitalism. It's the good fellas burnout. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd say it was broken, but it isn't broken. It does exactly what it says it's going to do. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. There's an article I was reading the other day about private equity firm buying nursing homes, and you can guess about how well that possible. <sighs> Ugh. That just sucks to think about. Seriously. Imagine figuring out how you can extract more and more profit and provide less and less of a service <sighs> to people in nursing homes. Wow. That just hurts to think about the idea that they've turned it on the housing market. They've turned it on retail. They've turned it on any number of places. And now they're going to do nursing homes. I mean, what's left? That's at some point what you got to ask. It's like, what haven't private equity got in their claws in at this point? Yeah. And like there, here are my solutions. Nationalize Facebook and Google. Probably just turn Facebook off. But nationalize Google search. Google and search engines mm-hmm. run by the government to provide the greatest because that is in fact a public then outlaw private equity there that's yes. my platform and running for office there that is it and I think you'd have a shot at this point with that and figure out how to ban all spam calls and text messages that that is my platform Ugh. yeah that's another one we've just gotten to the point where phones are completely unusable now phones you don't answer the phone are rendered useless because yeah. com- there is an entire economy that exists people scraping numbers to mm-hmm. spam call people 24-7. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's so cheap. It doesn't even matter. And it doesn't even have to be from this country. No. That's the one that kills me is the, the, the spam calls in Mandarin yeah. that you get because it is worth it in case. I mean, the margins are so high on that stuff that if you get one person that answers the phone, it's worth doing. Yeah. That's the point where we're at, where your phone number is mm-hmm. no longer a useful thing for you to have in a lot of ways. Right. Or at least if you want anybody else to have it, it's really like, you know, I screen everything, leave a message, we'll call you back. <laughs> if you really need to talk to me, then, you know, you're going to leave a message because 
there's just no point in answering it. Your phone doesn't work because it is a device used to extract money from you. Yeah. That is a terrifying state of affairs. Just absolutely horrifying. Mm-hmm. So as to the state of journalism, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a line in, in uh, the movie My Dinner with Andre, if you haven't seen it, it's a good way to spend an hour and 45 minutes. It's a movie by the, the theater director, Andre Gregory. Uh, it's Andre Gregory and Wallace Shawn. Right. They go to dinner and they talk about things. That's the whole movie. Huh. Okay. I saw the spinoff. It was called My Breakfast with Blassie. Yes. Yes. That is, in fact, a reference to my dinner with Ange. <laughs> that was that was pretty brilliant. Yes. I like that. Andy Kaufman and Freddie Blassie. Same principle uh-huh. as my dinner with Ange. Anyway, there's a point of my dinner with Ange <laughs> where, you know, Andre is having this existential crisis and says, you know, again, this is him saying this in 1981. He's saying that humanity is completely too far gone. Right. That the light of humanity is at this point extinguished practically. And that some of the people he's met in his travels, while not directing plays because of the existential crisis that he's undergoing, right, <laughs> is uh, that they believe, uh, I think it's at, at some like Swedish environmentalist outport called Findhorn and he goes, that they believe that their job is like the monks during the Dark Ages, to be the keeper of the human flame. Or when we drag ourselves kicking and screaming out of this utterly enshittified age we're living in, that there will be at Findhorn, like the monks of old, some record right. of what it meant to be a human being. That's what they believe their job was. And again, I think we can all look somewhat longingly back at 1981 as <laughs> the good old days. The good to old days. <laughs> I realized Reagan had just taken office and things were about to get extremely bad, extremely quickly. But from that vantage point, the people mm-hmm. there already felt they were fucked. And yet <laughs> I am from the future. And let me tell you what <laughs> fucked actually looks like from a few years it's down the line. Movie. Everyone, please go watch my dinner with Andre. Andre yes. Gregory is still alive. I just read his autobiography. <laughs> it's, it's quite delightful and, and it's a quick read. And, and Wallace Shawn is still out there. Definitely. Definitely. It sounds like a must watch. So one of the thing I was kind of considering here is that you mentioned the daily wire and how they finance this thing. And to some extent it's, uh, you know, billionaire coal industry profits that are pushing this. We have people on this side of the political spectrum that have maybe not that kind of money, but that definitely have a huge chunk of where are my Soros bucks is what I'm asking. Thank you. Papa George, where's my check? Thank you. We make these jokes. And this is an area where I think a Soros or somebody like him could get involved and do some real good. And I don't know if it's because this is sort of too down market for these guys, because it's not like Soros doesn't fund stuff. Yeah. But a lot of it seems to be, shall we say, a more highbrow version of news, version of media. And I find myself kind of thinking like, you might do a little better if you were to throw some money at people where they are to put this kind of stuff out because not everyone has the time, the attention span to sort through some of his stuff that the foundations that he finances, that the think tanks that he finances puts out. And I don't know if that's just a, 
we're being snobs about this in general, or if there's something else behind it, but it seems like this is a growth area. This is something somebody could really make a run in. I think, honestly, the political valence of lefty media, it's a little, weirdly enough, it's hard to get the wealthy lefties excited about this. There's that newsroom uh, career, which tried to do this. I mm-hmm. This woman is a sort of left of center, a democratic operative. I forget her name. They funded this thing a few years ago called the Courier Newsroom, Courier News, which would again write left of center. Again, it's aggregation and a little content milly stuff, but you know, in various places around the country. But, you know, the idea I think was good. I think the execution was poor. Right. But yeah, please. <laughs> where's the Oracle of Omaha throwing some money our way? He's a good exactly. Lefty. Exactly. Warren Buffett, you know, he's, he's done well for himself in this life. Yeah. He could spare a few. He could throw a few dollars towards this project. I think it's because we're behind if, if we're going right. to put ourselves into teams here. A sensible left for 60 years now, there has been a incredibly well-funded project to, we've talked about this before, to yep. denigrate the idea that of a shared reality. And one way to do it is by convincing a huge segment of the population that nothing they read in the newspaper is real and that it's all a lie and that there is no such thing as a shared reality and that you can, in fact, do the Chinese takeout menu version of reality that you want. You can pick and choose what things you want to believe are real. Or you can, in fact, get a couple of things off menu and believe whatever you want. And that's equally as valid, that there are no sources of People in those ivory towers are out to get you. I am not defending the actions of, you know, the mainstream press as a whole. They mess things up. Mm-hmm. They have a fairly elitist worldview. Mm-hmm. They cater to a bog standard at best liberal mindset, often right of center mindset. There are things with the Times is reporting, especially in this war that's been going on for the last month that would drive me up a tree. Yeah. But... <laughs> <laughs> the alternative is terrifying. Yes. The alternative locally is Sinclair. It's it's not even just Sinclair. It's Sinclair and Cat Turt. Yeah. It's it's seeing influencers as being your main source of news. Now, I don't know what's going to happen when when there's just the New York Times left cuz you know, all of these far right chum boxes, they do in fact rely you know, from the Breitbart's and the Daily Wires, all of them, they rely on the actual mainstream media to have people in the field. And, you know, the Daily Wire is not sending out field reporters for the most part. No, they're you not. Know, they're sending people to protest to get a shot of Antifa, you know, fighting someone in the streets. Right. And then they're taking mainstream news articles and barely rewriting them if they even bother. Right. Or writing them by, well, you know, making sure to you know, throw the word cuck in there a couple of times. But uh-huh. I, I really don't know what happens to them. When the actual source of news that they're commenting on goes away, they're not trying to fill that. No. But the rise of the parasocial influencer news economy, it's so terrifying Mm -hmm. and awful. And it makes people who seek out not just Tim Pool or Candace Owens, freaking Mr. Beast is their source of information about the world. Right. They are utterly fucked. Mm-hmm. Utterly and holy. 
and and the rest of us, unfortunately, we're all in this big old swimming pool together. We're fucked too. Yeah. And people don't realize just how influential Mr. Beast is with a certain generation. And I mean, so far the guy's been relatively benign unless I've missed something, yeah. but ugh. And then you've got these guys being news-based influencers, guys like Jake Shields. Oh, cool. This guy is a former UFC fighter, had a couple fights, fought GSP, made it look okay. And now he is this conservative somehow pundit. And a raging anti-Semite. Oh, fuck yes, he is. Who's, you know, dabbled in some light uh, Holocaust and all. Uh-huh. You marinate in that far-right soup long enough, sooner or later you're going to start talking about the JQ. It's inevitable. Yeah, yeah. It strikes me as really funny because at one point, Owen Linehan, everybody's favorite, you know, uh, academic dad. over there, he was doing his prog dad character. And one of the people he interviewed as prog dad was Jake Shields. And I remember at the time, certain journalists, I remember Luke O'Brien was shocked by this kind of like, what, what the fuck would you talk to that guy for? Boy, that aged kind of funny, didn't it? <laughs> the idea that Jake Shields is now this anti-Semitic troll who's far worse up front than Brogdad. We have seen this in the way that the news desert will spawn these scorpions who are replacing the actual like recording. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yep. It's been given steroids in the ongoing war in Gaza. People yes. searching out things like was it something men Twitter feed, the defending men or whatever the name it was. It was some random Twitter account that right. was, was dabbling in, you know, men's rights nonsense right up until, and then quickly power shifted into suddenly being an expert on Middle East politics. Like you're know, talking to end wokeness, right? Because they're on Twitter. Their only job is to sort of grab whatever viral detritus they find, grab what videos they can find, whatever. Both sides are pumping out propaganda all over the place. Oh, God. And all they do is just recirculate it for clout. Mm -hmm. And they are making people stupider and making uh -huh. less informed. I mean, it is so hard for me even, and I think of myself as someone who's a fairly discerning news reader, to understand what is going on in the Middle East right now. And the end result is that people just go, why is this so much work? I just like to know what kind of atrocities are happening, where and when. Mm -hmm. It's not a huge ask. I mean, it is a huge ask. At this point, it is. But asking me or any person who's going online to try to figure that out, asking, saying, well, no, you have to do a great deal of work because you have to sift through the agendas of con artists, grifters, and liars in order to figure yep. out if one bit of information is true. Granted, having some media literacy is important. When the New York Times writes an article, it is important to understand the biases of the people who work and more importantly, the people publish the New York Times. If, right. say, the Wall Street Journal publishes a similar story, it is important to understand the biases of the agendas of the people who publish the Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. Really not the people who write. The people who publish, that's where you should be questioning what their ultimate goal is people right. are right just only have so much power here yeah that has always been the case but now you have to figure out if former mma fighter jake shields is in fact a full-blown anti-semite before figuring out if video that he shared with you has any relation to reality exactly and that is a huge ask of a person who has a full day filled with, you know, 
worries and concerns and responsibilities themselves have to perform to be informed. And the end result is that the majority of the people say, I don't care. I'm washing my hands. This is too much work. Wake me when it's over. Right. Seriously. And so I can't be bothered with this means that all kinds of awful things get to happen under the cover of darkness. That is the end result. Right. Right. You see these people that are recirculating old Syria footage from 2012 of Assad bombing his own people and saying it's the IDF and they're putting that out there and they've got checks coming in now from Elon's new plan that are paying them to do this shit. Elon's mid-level marketing scheme. Right. It's insane. And this is the environment that we're looking at and that the world is operating in right now. Twitter was rife with problems before apartheid fly bought it. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. No one denies this. The Gaza war was the first real test of Twitter's ability to deliver accurate real-time information in a crisis. And all of everyone's worst fears were realized. Not only did it fail to deliver accurate information, it turbo-boosted disinformation. Yes. Yes, it did. Someone who has never had a Twitter account will know far more about what is going on in Gaza than <laughs> the most plugged-in person who is a power user yeah. on that account. That is a loss. Mm -hmm. That is a loss. At one point, there was no better way to find out what was going on, big picture, small picture, whatever you want to know. In real time. Uh-huh. Any kind of big world event. Yeah. Dive in. See what hundreds of people who are standing right in the middle of whatever this was are saying about it. You bypass all of it that way. You can find out exactly what's going on for the most part. And now, uh-uh, that's gone. You can't do that anymore. Think back to something as simple as Hurricane Sandy in New York 11 years ago. Right. I was using, you know, granted, my power was out, but mm -hmm. I was using Twitter to try to figure out which subway stations were open, which were closed how I would get back to Brooklyn. Like, right. you know, I was, there were parts of the city that were blacked out. I was at someone else's place. They had no power. And, you know, the waters were rising. We're worried about it. And I used Twitter to help me get home that. Mm -hmm. And then I, on my phone, or, or I think on my computer, some power that I watched uh, an illegal stream at the Knicks Heat game. So, <laughs> which I think I found on Twitter. Um, and of course. <laughs> or no, the, the, the illegal stream of the Knicks game was a couple of days later because they delayed it. Conflating two <laughs> events. But I did use Twitter to get real time information mm -hmm. and comfortably smug. An early disinformation specialist was posting those photos of the shark swimming in the in the city's, you know, up in the flooded city streets. Yep. And he caught yep. hell for that. Right. He got a good two days of news coverage being like, why would you do something so stupid? People are dying. The city was paralyzed. The transportation system was down. It was a fraught time. Why would you do something so stupid as to post this silly joke and maybe scare a few people? What did that get you? Right. You're doing that all for cloud? And now that uh -huh. is the majority of the web. That is the the yep. power users on the website are all now comfortable. Mm -hmm. And they have spaces now 
where they get yeah. together and they talk about this. Those spaces are so nightmarishly awful. I hate them with the uh-huh. fire of a thousand suns. You've got guys like Chuck Johnson who have reinvented themselves by doing spaces all Chuck the time. Chuck Johnson, who, by the way, is like, no, now I'm a Biden supporter and uh, I'm a, an expert <laughs> on uh, OPSEC. And, I was uh, doing this for the FBI the entire yeah, yeah, time. I Everything I ever agent. did that was... Oh, don't mind. Did I just post Zog again? Never mind that. I, I mean, I mean Israel. I mean the Israeli government. I mean Zionism. I, you know, Israeli interesting. <laughs> Jesus. You know, I, I occasionally will read Chuck's Substack because it's like a John Le Carre novel. If you gave every single character fentanyl <laughs> and, a, and bonked them on the head a few times with a polo mallet first. <laughs> <laughs> and made them all super anti-Semitic. Yeah, it's, and made them all anti-Semitic. It is so deranged and insane that uh-huh. I will check it out from uh-huh. time to time. Chuck C. Floorshitter is back. Great. Uh huh. Thank God we've invested in freedom of speech to give a megaphone to that lunatic. Right. And this is the guy that at some point was easily one of the worst purveyors of shit news on the site. Yes. And now he's back and he's reinventing himself. And there's at least a few idiots out there who believe he's not what he was. At least a few. I think uh, Claude Taylor is following him or, or one of those guys. Eric Garland. Eric Garland Eric is Garland. the one who's boosting him, which is just ma, chef's kiss. Perfect. You guys <sighs> absolutely deserve each other. It, it's My not, guy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the apex of game theory is, is him and Chuck together again. Well, and the funny part is he used to have some shit to say about Chuck that wasn't particularly nice. That guy definitely knew what Chuck was up to at one point. And then all of a sudden, nope, guess what? <laughs> we're we're friends now. Chuck was totally doing all of this for the CIA. Or the Krasensteins for the love of oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. The fracking Krasens are... are... <laughs> <laughs> you laugh so you don't cry. You guys are morons. Brian, Ed, somehow together you're stupider than the sum of your parts. And I hope you're listening mm-hmm. to this because you guys are morons and stop. Stop doing yeah. this. You per- tweeting out the news. Stop. <laughs> you are awful people. You are too stupid to do this. I hate you. They tend to stop these things when the feds show up with warrants. We can only hope at some point. Oh, God. But- I mean- this is what we're rewarding. Jackson Hinkle. You know, this kid's 25 years old. This is a guy who couldn't possibly act any harder as a useful idiot if he tried. Yeah. And MAGA communism. Yes, yes, yes. The, the MAGA communism. <laughs> it's peanut butter and, and foot fungus. Two great tastes that taste like absolute garbage together. <laughs> seriously and these are the influencers now these are the people that are making tons of money off of doing this they're getting millions upon millions of impressions i mean they're not getting tons of money i I think it's become fairly clear that whatever those checks were based on the first round were meant to rope people into subscribing and that they're not being paid out at the same level because honestly them up, making the figures up on the back of a napkin and handing them to Linda Yaccarino and saying, okay, write these guys <laughs> checks. Like, uh-uh. The only reason I'm still on it is for sports Twitter. I like being on it when there is a game 
and I can right. see some of my sports Twitter friends posting things. I, I use it to like <laughs> watch some Knicks highlights or you know the occasional Mets highlight. And if if it weren't right. for sports Twitter, I probably nuke the thing for more of it. It is, but it's depressing because for all of Twitter's flaws, all the ways it served as a vehicle for harassment and dogpiling and all the ways it incentivized terrible behavior. I, I'm trying to think of it a way that Elon's reign could have gone worse. And then it really, I, I'm at a loss. No. And the only glimmer of hope is that eventually the banks are going to say that he has to start paying them and the site will go bankrupt and maybe get sold to someone who will try to rehabilitate it. But, you know, websites, when they start to go into a death spiral, yeah, I, I can't think of a lot of examples where they get revived. Right. No, that's one of those things that just, it, it goes one way. There's an excellent Ryan Broderick garbage day post about this, which is the problem with the internet as a whole right now. And this relates to the collapse of digital media is that there is no way to say, this is what the internet is looking at. There was a sense of a collective. I saw that post. Yes. Yeah. I saw that. It's very smart and it's very spot on. And it's why things feel, I think, so confused and fragmented because, you know, when there was a story, for example, that was really exciting, everyone said, oh my God, I have this. There was a sense of this shared purpose of, yeah, we all got to read this. Like, this is something that we all care about. Even something as dumb as, you know, the dress, there was a moment of shared collective online reality. We're all debating this. We're all trying to decide what right. color that damn thing is. We're all doing it. Or we're all yelling at the people debating that's the color stupid say. Right. But there was a way that, especially via Twitter, but also through all the news websites that sort of, you know, Twitter didn't serve really as an assignment editor, but it did serve as a kind of a, as a magnifying glass. Right. That is gone. And online communities now are so disparate and fragmented that there is no sense of shared reality online and it's a very weird time right now and it's almost like things were pre-social media where there were blogs and there were message boards and people would congregate in those but the idea of the entire internet caring about a handful of the same things that just didn't exist right and i think we're back there now it can make for a very kind of jarring and disorienting and unsettling experience online i know that when I log on, it's not pleasant most of the time. <laughs> and I think it's not just the proliferation of the worst people, though it is very much, that's a big part of it. It's this sense of that there's no roadmap to understanding what's going on. Right. And that makes the worst people tend to thrive in this. Right. When you don't have a consensus reality, when you don't have a consensus sense of what's going on, you open that space up yep. to every last bad actor and grifter out there. And like you said, we're seeing this with the war. We're seeing this with every news event that's come up since Elon bought the damn thing. And it's getting harder and harder to sort through all of that stuff. Right. And eventually what happens is people say, I don't either. They just stop paying attention at all. Or they say, well, then I'm going to pick the reality that makes me feel the best. Right. And I don't care what political valence you have. I don't care where on the political spectrum you are. The idea that, well, okay, fine. If there's no one can agree on this, I'm just going to do what makes me happiest. That is, yeah. everyone is, is susceptible to that. Everybody mm-hmm. is susceptible to that. And it will 
only lead to terrible, more terrible real world, not just online, but terrible real world. It will. It absolutely will. You know, you can already see it starting to lead to real world terrible outcomes because we're seeing this stuff go offline in ways that it hasn't before. We're seeing protests of things that were online at one point moving to these offline. We're seeing stuff like the big example I can think of from this last week is um, David DiPape, Paul Pelosi's attacker, the guy who beat up Nancy Pelosi's husband. This guy took a bunch of online conspiracy theories and decided it would be a great idea to go and beat up the Speaker of the House's husband only because Nancy wasn't there. You can't pigeonhole him. He's not Brennan Tarrant. He's not Dylan Woods. No. He did not have what anyone would consider an easily identifiable ideology. Mm-mm. It is a witch's root right. of far-right, far-left, nonsensical thinking, which some of it you know, sounds kind of Trumpist, and other kinds of it are, are wacky lefty shit. Mm-hmm. Some of it sounds like you know, David Ick. Right. You know, yeah. some of it, it just depends on what you're looking at, but it's like this guy had a thoroughly unhinged website. I looked at it before they took it down and this man was into all kinds of crazy shit. It yes. wasn't one side or the other. No, it was a poo-poo platter of awful uh-huh. and none of it was real. Nope. You got a conspiracy? The man believed in it. Yeah. The royal we created a thing called the interwebs, which fed him mm-hmm. a steady diet of this toxic nonsense. Uh-huh. If he was born 40 years earlier, would he be reading just garbage pamphlets and have the same beliefs? Maybe, maybe not. It would have been harder for him to access. We made it a yes. frictionless experience where you can get this stuff delivered to you in an instant. Over mm-hmm. and over and over. And he's not going to be the last one of these guys we see because there are so many people just like him right now swimming in that sort of information environment that are just marinating in it. And eventually they're going to hit the point where they decide it's got to get kinetic. They decide that it's time to really go save the children. So please, instead of buying a fancy coffee, subscribe to your local news publication. <laughs> I mean, I know it sounds like I, it sounds like I, I've got someone with a compound fracture and I'm saying, well, you know, maybe stay off it for a couple of days. And, and I don't think that's the analogy here, but if you do have a compound fracture, it is probably a good idea to stay off a couple of days. Yes, you in At fact least. need you you need possibly an invasive surgical procedure and a cast, but also not walking is a good idea. It's a good start. Yeah. The first thing you would tell somebody with a compound fracture to do is don't walk on it. Yeah. That is the very first piece of advice you would give somebody. Yes. Yes, there is more coming about how to fix this, but the first thing you want to say is stay off this thing. <laughs> Right. Yeah, well, this is the American healthcare system we're talking about. So, Theoretically, there's more coming. But the first thing you would want to tell somebody is yeah, stay off Yeah, don't put that weight thing. on that. It's That's not right. a load-bearing limb you've got. Not anymore, it isn't. And that's, I think, a perfectly valid response. It's like, how do you start getting this fixed? Well, subscribe to your local paper. Yeah. Go to Starbucks one less time a month. Here's my answer. I'm going to quote the Japanese poet Issa. That's where I'm going with this. You ready? Mm. Oh, snail, climb Mount Fuji, but slowly, slowly. Well said, well said. That's the poem. And that's where we're at. Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. 
If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word for, and the letter M, all one word, and Grizza BJJ, G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNW Pod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.